you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. This is a podcast we've been excited to do for a while. We got an advanced copy of the book by Gene Guerrero, hate monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the white nationalist agenda. You've probably seen us talking about it and promoting it a little bit because uh, we were really excited about it. So we'll talk some more about that. So be sure to go to thecvpn.com, Chris Foss Podcast Network. Uh, refer the online podcast to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Make sure you subscribe. If you want to see the video version of this discussion, go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. And you can see all the wonderful videos that we have up there as well. Today we have an accomplished author, award-winning author. Uh, Gene Guerrero is a award-winning investigative journalist and the author of the new book that just came out this week, Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. Her first book, Crux, a cross-border memoir, won a Penn Literary Award. Her writing is featured in the, the Best American Essays 2019. She is an Emmy winning border reporter, contributing to NPR, and the PBS NewsHour, and more. Welcome to the show, Gene. How are you doing? Good. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome sauce. And as I was just showing you earlier, uh, th- your book was so informative, we, we <laughs> filled it with post-it notes. And so it's an extraordinary book. If I can give it a plug, I recommend everybody go out and grab this book. You really need to understand the undercurrents and the essence of the complexity of what's really going on behind the scenes in the, in the Trump administration and what made some of the monsters that go into it. Uh, so, Gene, give us an overview of what brought you to the book or wanting to write the book and uh, kind of an overview of the book, if you would. Well, I've always been drawn to the stories of outsiders, you know, people on the fringes. I wrote my first book about my dad who, you know, struggled with substance abuse and believed the CIA was after him and, you know, spent my career as a journalist telling the stories of asylum seekers and, you know, deported migrants and right-wing extremists. And I decided, you know, Stephen Miller, even though he's now one of the most powerful people in the White House, he for a majority of his life was was somewhat of an outsider, you know, growing up in liberal Santa Monica, California, a very, very progressive town and, and espousing very conservative views, even through his time on Capitol Hill, when Republicans were really moving towards a more moderate line and compromising with the Democrats on immigration. Stephen Miller was pushing it in the complete opposite, very fringe and hardcore anti-immigration direction. So I, I, I was attracted to telling the story of Stephen Miller as, as, as an outsider and, and trying to understand it also because, you know, I'd been covering the impact of Stephen Miller's policies from day one of the Trump administration, you know, as an immigration reporter at the busiest border crossing in the country, the San Diego Tijuana border crossing, you know, I was, I was, especially during the family separation crisis, I really started to think about Stephen Miller because 
I was interviewing all of these parents whose children had been taken away from them. Um, in, in most cases, parents who had presented legally at ports of entry had no criminal records, hadn't broken any laws, and, and had simply asked for asylum the, the way that federal law requires and had been separated from their children. In one case, there was a father from El Salvador whose one-year-old baby was taken away from him and he was locked up for eight months without knowing, you know, where his kid was. And when he finally gets the baby back, the baby was, you know, covered in lice and just traumatized. Um, You know, he was kept at a tender age facility for, uh, that was later closed as a result of alleged abuses against these children. So I, I wanted to understand, you know, the White House kept saying that this was a policy about law and order. It was about, you know, just enforcing the law. But I knew that that wasn't the case because, you know, I was on the front lines. And, and for me, that raised the question, well, if this isn't about law and order, then what is it about? And for that answer, I had to really start to investigate the life of Stephen Miller, the man who was crafting these policies and, and trying to understand, you know, what makes him tick. And you did an extraordinary act of journalism in this book. I mean, uh, in reading the author's note back here, your note, I should probably say, uh, hate monger is based on more than 150 interviews, more than 100 of them directly acquainted with Miller's friends, family, or colleagues. It draws on hundreds of pages of court documents, email correspondence and other, and other documents. How, How many, how long have you been writing this book? It, this is. This sounds like a magnus opus of 10 years or something <laughs> to do, at least. That's the perception I got when I read it, so detailed. Yeah, well, thank you. No, I mean, I had to turn it around on a very quick timeline, you know, six-month timeline, wow. because we really wanted to, you know, inform the conversation, you know, leading up to, you know, just informing the conversation in 2020 and making sure that, you know, putting this book out when it's still relevant and so I, you know, I got to work immediately when I got the book deal in May of 2019 and, and you know, t- turned it in around the end of, of 2019. Wow. I mean, just, just an extraordinary piece of journalism. This thing is so heavily detailed. And like you probably saw me, saw, saw me say on Twitter, I, I, you know, I've been watching Stephen Miller from the beginning and I've known that he's, you know, a bit of a puppet master in, behind the scenes, but I didn't know how much and I didn't know what, what built this, this Frankenstein. And you go into such detail and you, you map from the beginning of his childhood and the arc of how he goes through his life, the, the people who have the influences on him and everything else. Um, what was, what was interesting, this is a book that I wanted to see written. Like I've been waiting for years uh, I've been waiting for years going, somebody's going to write the history of this, this uh, mofo. And, uh, and, uh, and, and it's going to be interesting. And so when you, when you came to me and said you've written this, I, I was like, yeah, somebody's wrote it. The history is, is out there. And, um, and, and so I was really excited from that, from that nature. So um, you've written one of the book crux and uh, so this book starts out, you start out uh, talking about what, kind of laying the foundation of what his childhood mm-hmm. was like. Um, tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, one of the things that was most interesting to me when I learned about Stephen Miller is, you know, he's from California. He grew up in Southern California during the 90s, which is the same time that I grew up in Southern California. I'm just a couple years younger than him, and I grew up a couple hours south of where he did in Santa Monica, California. And so when I started reporting this book, I, I really wanted to show, you know, how how he was shaped by the California of the 90s, because, you know, from my conversations with people who knew him back then, Steve Miller is truly a product of that environment. For for people who are, don't weren't in California and, and don't live in California and, and, and weren't there in the 90s, it would, it's probably surprising to hear this because California is such a blue state and kind of leads the charge against the Trump administration now in many ways. But California in the 90s, when Stephen Miller was growing up there, was there was a lot of anti-immigrant hostility. You know, the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, was blaming all of the state's fiscal problems on a, quote, invasion at the border. And there were unprecedented bipartisan attacks on, you know, bilingual education, on affirmative action, on uh, social services for children of undocumented migrants. So, you know, Californians really learned how to scapegoat against immigrants that decade. And, and Stephen Miller was listening to, you know, Rush Limbaugh at the time. He was uh, reading conservative writers. And so you start to see him really internalizing a lot of this racist rhetoric um, and antagonism against brown and black people from a very young age. And for me, one of the most interesting things discovering, you know, about his his childhood is that Stephen Miller is a case study in radicalization. You know, when he was a teenager, he'd recently had to move from this very affluent part of Santa Monica to a slightly less affluent part. His dad had been struggling with his real estate company. He was have, he was plagued by bankruptcies and you know legal disputes related to to his real estate and so so the family loses a bunch of money and and they have to move so during this period Stephen Miller kind of perfectly fits the profile of someone who is predisposed to to being radicalized you know he's feeling lost he's feeling angry he's feeling displaced and this is around the time that he meets David Horowitz, who is a man who is a former Marxist and who became a right-wing radical and at the time was looking for young conservative men like Stephen Miller to teach the tools of the civil rights movement in order to attack the civil rights movement. So, you know, using the same language of the civil rights movement to, to against it, um, you know, painting people of color and, and liberals as racists or as oppressors and, and painting white conservative men as victims of discrimination based on their skin color. You know, this real white grievance mentality, um, which was an inversion of, 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 you know, the civil rights movement and a perversion of it. And he gave Stephen Miller these tools, introduced Stephen Miller to the fantasy that everything that we hold dear as Americans is a result of white men. You know, this idea that white men created liberty and equality and all of these things, completely ignoring the role of, you know, people of color in this history and in the civil rights movement. But Stephen Miller, for some reason, despite being the descendant of, of Jewish refugees, was really taken with this identification with whiteness and white male mentality. And you see him at school, like in, in, in high school, starting to go around 
expressing very racist sentiments, you know, telling his Mexican classmates to go back home to their countries, telling him to speak English, breaking up with a Mexican friend and telling him that it's because of his Latino heritage, uh, going into school board meetings to argue passionately against measures to improve racial equity in the school. So just stuff that you wouldn't expect to see out of a teenager. Um, but, you know, this is when he was being mentored by people like David Horowitz, who, who Horowitz in particular becomes kind of like a father figure to Stephen Miller and, you know, helps him publish self-promotional articles on his website, you know, hooks, eventually shapes his career, gets him his first job in Congress and, and goes on to play a direct influence on Trump's rhetoric and Trump's policies through Stephen Miller, according to private correspondence that I obtained for the book, which I, I can talk about later. Yeah, I, I mean, you. the thing that's interesting to me about people, and, and I've uh, all my life I've always been enamored by why people do what they do and what gets them, what, what's that moment, you know, that they fall off the bus or the wagon, they, they hit their head, their mom drops them on their head as a kid. And, and suddenly they turn into a monster like Hitler, Mussolini, et cetera. Um, and so you, you detail uh, as close as you can. I mean, you, you really couldn't interview, I guess, Stephen Miller and his mom. <laughs> they weren't really interested probably in talking to him. No, you know, from the very beginning, I, I reached out to Stephen Miller in the white house and, told them that I wanted them to be a part of this process and give, you know, Stephen Miller an opportunity to not only respond to other people's comments, but also, you know, recommend people that he thinks I should talk to. Um, but no, I just never heard back from wow. Stephen Miller or the White House. And it's interesting to me because I've always looked at Stephen Miller and tried to figure out where he dropped, he, he dropped uh where, where he, you know, became this toxic thing. It, it, it's apparent in your book and the detail that you go into it. His, his father, uh, his father seems pretty toxic. Uh, he's, you know, he's in fights with his, his law office. He's in fights with his family. They're always in court. Um, you know, they're, they're losing, they're, they're having to step down from their kind of, uh, higher, richer life, uh, because, and he has to go to a different school that's filled with more immigrants because, because of his father, you know, constantly having this toxic sort of relationship. Is my perception of that right? Well, from my conversations with people who knew Stephen Miller's father and from, you know, review of the court documents, his dad, you know, he's described to me as, as being very Trump-like. You know, he's described to me as very combative. The court documents describe him as a masterpiece of evasion and manipulation. You know, he, he was getting into disputes with his own brother, who eventually, his brother is a psychologist who gets, you know, permanently separated from the family through a no-contact order and a settlement agreement. And, and it also ends up deprived of a majority of the family inheritance uh, due to alleged bullying by Stephen Miller's father, according to the court documents. And so it, it appears you know, there's some very interesting parallels, especially if you're familiar with the Trump family and the Mary Trump book, you, you begin to realize that there are some striking parallels between the family of Stephen Miller and the family of Donald Trump. And it's, it helps to explain why these men have been able to you know, jibe so well together and, 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 and um, you know, mutually benefit one another and understand each other in a way that, you know, few other pairs inside the White House do. Um, but yeah, I mean, his father, his, his father was expressing, I mean, he was initially a Democrat and he starts to express 
his Republican viewpoints when things start to kind of fall apart with his real estate company. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard to see a, a direct line between Stephen Miller and his conservative contrarian viewpoints and, and the ones that his father began to express around the time that his, his business dealings were falling apart. I mean, he used to talk about the ridiculous liberal elites and all of their regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is when you see Stephen Miller start to adopt the same kind of aggressive um, hostility towards liberals and, and as well as people of color. And and that's usually what you find with racism. People are, you know, that stuff isn't working out for them in life, and they decide to blame some other uh, group of people uh, for, you know, oh, it's their fault that I'm not succeeding in life, um, which is uh, uh, it's just uh, uh, it's it's awful and horrible, and and it certainly doesn't help their situation or anyone's situation uh, in the destructive nature of it. Um, in looking at, at the profile you draw of of uh, of uh, of Stephen Miller through your interviews, uh, you know Stephen Miller has always kind of struck me as an incel. Like if you're familiar with the the yeah. uh, the incel sort of generation, and like I've always looked at him and gone, that guy has that guy ever had a girlfriend in his life? <laughs> um, and then you paint the picture of him being the troller, you know, and 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 some of it early on just being like for the attention. It's like it seems like that's the only way he knows being that that uh, toxic self is is the only way he knows how to get some attention, which is kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, I mean, in high school, he runs for student government under the platform of, you know, students shouldn't have to pick up their trash because there are, he says that that's what the janitors are there to do. And he knew, you know, that this was going to provoke outrage and shock in the, in the student body. Um, you know, one of the student government leaders who was there thought he was trying to provoke a, a race riot that, that, you know, there had been fights before in the school of that nature. And, and, and it, it appeared that that's what Stephen Miller was trying to do. And people were, you know, screaming at each other, throwing things. And, and she had to push him off the stage to, to avoid, you know, people going, get, getting too, too riled up. But that, you know, from my conversation with, with Stephen Miller's friends, it appears that from a very young age, he's wanted to, He's used the, you know, expressing very offensive and out there beliefs as a way of getting attention, as a way of of getting power, and 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 it worked. I mean, he he ended up getting invited onto the Larry Elder show as as a kid, repeatedly complaining about multiculturalism uh, and left wing indoctrination, like you know, on the radio as a kid, and he he just slowly realizes that this is a real path to power. And even though for a long time, people kind of rolled their eyes at him and thought, you know, he was offensive, but he couldn't, people thought he was just kind of a pariah and that he could never actually do any real harm because he was just so out there. And, uh, you know, it actually turned out that they were wrong because Stephen Miller was able to use this to, to get more and more attention using, you know, David Horowitz's tools that he taught him, like appealing to desires for diversity and multiculturalism in order to attack diversity and multiculturalism. So, you know, at Duke University, he gets a call, a regular column at the paper um, in part because some people on the staff saw him as adding to, you know, the, the diversity, the, the intellectual diversity in this case, just because his beliefs were so out there. But yeah, absolutely. It starts with him, you know, trying to get attention and then realizing that this is actually working and it starts to become more and more ingrained in his identity until he's consumed by it and, and is a, is an extremist who, who truly believes 
in the things that, that he is saying and is led, you know, by a man, David Horowitz, who believes that there is no racism in this society except for racism against white men and that anti-white racism represents the gravest threat to society. You know, this is completely ahistorical and counter, counter to reality, but Stephen Miller was a young and vulnerable and he you know, came to be consumed by this idea and this mission that he needed to keep brown and black people out of this country because he believes that too many brown and black people pose some kind of existential threat, in part because he's been reading so much white supremacist and white nationalist literature, which I delve into in the book, you know, which paints brown and black people, uh, you know, the, the white supremacist literature paints brown and black people as being more innately violent than, than, than white people, you know, using misleading stats and, and anecdotes and, and the, the same kind of stuff that you see Stephen Miller now inserting into Trump's rhetoric, you know, very gruesome details about alleged migrant crimes, you know, slaughtering little girls, uh, you know, taking a hammer to a, crush a woman's eye sockets, really vivid language that is supposed to get you to be fearful and hateful of of immigrants and to believe that they pose some kind of threat. I, you know, and I, I take to Stephen Miller as a man uh, in my perception of him growing up. I know what men go through or he goes through. And so it, one of the things you mentioned in your book is there's a conversation he has with somebody about his parents. And one of the things he hates is when they give him the silent treatment, when they ignore him. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm wondering how much that came out. Uh, what was interesting to me, uh, also in your book, there was, uh, it was all interesting. Uh, but what was interesting is he has a Mexican girlfriend in, I believe, college? Yeah. So going back to your incel remark, he, he actually has had a girlfriend, you know, prior... <laughs> <laughs> Prior to his his now wife Katie Miller, he he had one serious girlfriend that his friends are aware of, and this is a Mexican American girl that he met freshman year at Duke University, who he dated for the entire year, uh, but she you know she ended up leaving Duke University after freshman year, and and they broke up you know after that. But it's interesting because his friend, their friends describe that relationship as very, you know, awkward to me. Like apparently she uh, didn't want people to know that she was, you know, in a romantic relationship with Stephen Miller. And so she was trying to keep it secret and he liked her a lot more than she liked him, but they spent all their time together anyway. And, um, you know, it was just an interesting, an interesting courtship and, she is a Mexican American girl who had conservative beliefs. You know, she uh, she was pro uh, you know pro uh, gun rights, like very pro gun rights and, and things like that. So it kind of it kind of makes sense why, why they were attracted to each other. But it is interesting, you know, given that Stephen Miller has dedicated his life to demonizing and and, and punishing the immigrant community. That his only girlfriend prior to his wife is someone of, of Mexican descent. And see, to me, what, I mean, what you see in a lot of these different monsters is, is what happened to them in their childhood or what affected them and, and what shaped them. And then, you know, whatever, whatever vehicle of, of monstrosity that they decide to adhere on to, to fix or to deal or to um, pave over the, the, the demon inside them. Um, 
And and early on, he was reading uh, Rush Limbaugh. You mentioned uh, he was growing up on right-wing talk radio, which was on the rise. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, you quote him as saying, it was like a page-turning throw to me. Every page was like a new revelation. And uh, Rush Limbaugh was railing against uh, feminazis, uh, Christopher Columbus being trashed, uh, had a lot of hateful things to say about people of race and also women. Uh, and very sexist comments about women. Um, and uh, what I see is a young man in high school who uh, there's a, there's another example you give where he he's running up to a classmate, Keisha Ram, and uh, and she's doing some organized events for climate change. And he launches into speeches while he's lecturing her. And, and I see an incel sort of person who's attracted to, women and and as guys we kind of all go through this experience where we have to learn that approaching women are is very different than how we interact with as guys like if you remember when you were a kid we all did the cooties things with our shoes or something at least my generation <laughs> did um but you, you had to learn that you had to deal with women very differently you couldn't go up and and treat them like another guy and the mexican girlfriend is is an interesting sort of thing that he finally gets but you you see him acting out all through high school and he can't yeah. get a girlfriend mm-hmm. and i'm sure you know he's got a you know he's he's a young man so and he's trying to figure out how this isn't working for him you know the, the girls don't seem to like it and so it turns into kind of a twisted sort of sick fantasy or fetish or something where he's like well i'm just going to say more offensive things and maybe Maybe that will work, you know, <laughs> or maybe that's his punishment for the thing. And it, it reminded me of James Baldwin's sort of experience with it. He wrote about with the contorted sexuality and, and uh, attraction and the, and the, the people that, that, that race hadn't dealt with. He writes in Going to Meet the Man where uh, it dramatizes racism as symptomatic of an inner disorder that reveals itself through the protagonist's sexual dysfunction and the malady of a defective mind. Um, and so to me, like, and I don't know definitively, but uh, to me, that seems to be a lot of this crux of what started this internal crisis. And like you say, he's driven to first rush Limbaugh and, uh, and then he gets on the Larry Elder show. I didn't even know this stuff existed. So you, you enlightened a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and Larry Elder, you know, puts him on the radio and starts, starts, uh, like you say, using him as a protege and, and radicalization. And then of course he goes from there to, um, uh, David Horowitz who David Horowitz was like a huge shaping, uh, in the arc of his life. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but it does. It does have you know. I don't delve too much into it in the book, but there there is some interesting parallels with you know, just these toxic manifestations of 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 masculinity, like an, a, a rigid notion of what it means to be a man, um, and and you see it in the people that Stephen Miller chooses to idolize. You know, John Wayne, and later Donald Trump being his ultimate hero, and just this this idea that you know uh, that you know mis misbehavior and 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 just breaking the law and stuff is like very cool you know if it's a white man but if it's a person of color then it's completely different but yeah you see Stephen Miller getting obsessed with mobsters too mm-hmm. like he was really into this Martin Scorsese film called Casino and he would dress up as 
Robert De Niro's mobster character in the movie, you know, with these really bright colored flamboyant suits on trips to Las Vegas, which is one of his favorite places, according to his friends. Like he would always go there on birthdays dressed up as this mobster, you know, with like the rings and the chains and like up until he was like in his thirties. So this isn't just like a young man thing. This is like a real obsession that he's had for a long time. It's interesting to kind of, you know, interrogate that a little bit and, and where, where that comes from. And, and a lot of it was just the narratives that Stephen Miller was being exposed to as a young man, which led him to identify with these, you know, white male antiheroes. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it, oh man, I lost my point that I had on that. But what, what you see through him as a young man is he doesn't go through the experience that most men and women go through where they, they get married at a young age, you have kids, you, you learn a, a decorum of empathy. At least most people do that aren't narcissists, I suppose. Um, you know, you, you learn a lot about life through those experiences, but he doesn't, he doesn't go through those because, well, he can't get any girlfriends. Uh, in fact, one of the stories that was funny in your book, you wrote about how with his girlfriend in college, he, he put the trash cans outside of her college dirt door and to lock her in it just just yeah i thought that was interesting yeah yeah he he traps her inside like (laughs) he like you know tries to imprison her inside of her dorm room by putting the trash cans and like taping them in a way where she can't get out like i don't know some kind of makeshift border wall i have no idea i mean her roommate thought it was kind of like half half insane half 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 a joke but like a weird joke and yeah, it's just it's just it, it it's curious. I, I his his romantic life is it could probably be an entire book in and of itself. Note to self: Don't pick up chicks. By <laughs> anyway, um, so that's it. But he 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 really gets in deep into it. He, you have some quotes from the book: Racism does not exist; it's in your imagination. Uh, he also said uh, segregation wasn't legally imposed. So it was irrelevant. He denies the civil rights movement uh, in his, even in his, uh, uh, his uh, high school yearbook, he puts, there can be no 50, 50 Americanism in this country. There's only room for 100% Americanism and uh, only those who choose or only those who are Americans and nothing else, which is pretty interesting. We've had a lot of discussion about the uh, white nationalist sort of stuff. So you write about how he goes all through this stuff, and it's it's really detailed. That's what I loved about the book, because you can see just what creates this man in an arc. And more and more, like I said, he's single, he can't get a girl, and so it seems like a lot of this funneling of of hate and anger and frustration uh, probably from an incel sense in some cases, just gets funneled just more deeply into hate. It just becomes ingrained. And, and uh, what was interesting in your book, too, is you talked about how, how much David Horowitz just pretty much guides him right in the White House. It's crazy. Exactly. You know, throughout college, he he recruited Stephen Miller to lead the, his terrorism awareness project, which is just this project of conflating Muslims and Arabs with terrorists through, you know, this website that published Islamophobic material and also through campus events. And but like I said, you know, Stephen Miller graduated from college, kind of a pariah, did, didn't know where he was going to go or what he was going to do. And David Horowitz swooped in and and rescued him. You know, he got him a job with Tea Party Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who 
he thought would be a good fit for Horowitz because he thought that Bachman shared their views about Muslims. And so he gets him a job as a press secretary working for Michelle Bachman, where, you know, he learns the ropes of Capitol Hill. He, he gets tired of working for her. And so David Horowitz gets him a job with uh, Arizona Congressman John Shadegg for a little, for a few months. And then from there, he gets him a job with, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, which is where Stephen Miller, you know, works for several years and really starts to flex his muscles as someone becoming obsessed with immigration and, and, dec- and you know, attacking immigration as a way of re-engineering demographic flows into this country, which is an idea that he was introduced to when he was at Duke University. You know, he worked with the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer, who was also a student there at the time to bring Peter Brimlow, a white nationalist, to campus. And he had written, Peter Brimlow had written this book uh, called Alienation that, that talks about the need, to, from his perspective, to, to pause all immigration into this country to, you know, keep it a majority white country. So, you know, it, I, when he's working for Sessions, Stephen Miller successfully w- works to derail this historic bipartisan immigration compromise that Republicans and Democrats were working on to finally, you know, like really tackle the immigration issue, you know, further militarizing the border, but also, you know, trying to provide a legal pathway for people who've already established roots here. And Stephen Miller really painted this bill as, you know, something that was going to, quote, decimate America. And, you know, something that was being supported by what he called globalist elites who were just trying to destroy the United States through limitless importation of cheap labor, which completely mischaracterized the bill because, you know, legitimizing a portion of the workforce would have required a fairer wage for them, not, not you know, making it harder for people to exploit them. And so... So he succeeds in in derailing this bill through partnerships with right-wing media. He was, you know, he got chummy with Ann Coulter, with Tucker Carlson. Stephen Miller has always been really good at networking in the right-wing media sphere. And so so he, he works to derail this compromise. And eventually Trump catches his eye. You know, he hears Trump talking about how the United States is turning into a, quote, third world, which is something that is often used by white supremacists to describe the, quote, browning of America. And so you see Steve Miller getting really excited about Trump and he, he, he wishes like that he would run for president. And then when Trump announces his candidacy, Stephen Miller starts to immediately contribute free labor to the campaign, you know, sending over memos uh, with talking points, sending over immigration policy, and, and, and eventually gets recruited formally to the campaign as a top speechwriter and a senior policy advisor in January of 2016. Um, and remember, this is a man who has, you know, no prior policy experience. He, he's a public relations flack, and he's hired to shape Trump's policy. And and he draws almost exclusively from think tanks, you know, for the immigration policy. He, he draws from think tanks that were created by white supremacists who believe in population control for non-white people. Um, and, and this is what, you know, I try to connect the dots in the book to show people that, you know, Stephen Miller has learned how to very effectively launder white supremacist ideas through the language of heritage, through the language of, you know, economics and national security, painting this as, as something that's about heritage and, and the economy and, and, and national security, when in fact, if you actually connect the dots and, and look at where he's pulling this material from, it is about 
race. It is about re-engineering the ethnic flows into this country because he believes, because he was radicalized and indoctrinated at a young age, that brown and black people are, are, that they pose some kind of apocalyptic threat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had to learn that uh, in 2016 when I had to start going, what, what is white nationalism? What, what's going on here? Why is this guy elected? Um, and the keywords, you know, uh, culture, uh, our culture, uh, our heritage and stuff, you know, and I had heard that stuff, but I, I hadn't equated it with anything. And then uh, doing the research, uh, you know, I had to go, wow, okay, this, wow, they've hijacked these terms. So I got to be careful what I say. Um, in fact, uh, just jumping back a little bit, uh, this floored me when I read it in your book. Uh, Michelle Bachman's running for office and she's arguing with her opponent. And R- Michelle Bachman responded that his remark was highly offensive to the victims of migrant criminals. She said migrants were bringing in diseases, bringing in drugs, bringing in violence. Her language reflected Miller's views. And that's Donald Trump at the bottom of the elevator on day one, right? Exactly. Yeah. Holy crap. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, Stephen Miller didn't um, shape those, uh, at least according to the campaign officials who I spoke to, he didn't play a role in that first speech that Trump gave, but Stephen Miller, you know, used a much more effective apocalyptic language to rile up fear. You know, it's Trump's Trump's initial comments about Mexicans as rapists and criminals were really offensive, and uh, you know, they, they were offensive, but but they didn't incite as much fear as the language that Stephen Miller uses. Like, you know, really talking about American carnage, talking about you know, as I said earlier, you know, migrants slaughtering little girls, just very vivid language that Trump isn't very good at using because he's not a very articulate man. But Stephen Miller, you know, brings that to the table as a very bookish person and as a person who's been reading a lot of white supremacist literature and knows how to demonize migrants in a very effective way. You know, from day one in the White House, Stephen Miller one of his first actions is to create an office that is dedicated to the daily demonization of migrants, you know, Mm -hmm. pumping out press releases about the crimes of migrants. He he specifically asked officials to include photos of, 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 of people's gang tattoos to try to like, you know, really rile up fear. Um, And, and so, yeah, I mean, Stephen Miller just brought to the table his work ethic and his, his knowledge of white supremacist literature. And it was it's extraordinary detail what you put in the book where you talk about how he literally starts just running all these different uh, departments uh, and, and border patrol uh, and and he, and he basically just starts running them and he starts kind of personifying or acting like, well, this is what Donald Trump wants. And if you're talking to me, you're talking to Donald Trump and people, you know, fault him with this fealty and this authoritarian sort of thing and it'd be you know he he i don't know if he was the one who really pushed this in the white house or donald trump's narcissism did but he really propagates that whole uh either either everybody marches the same thing or we you know he moves people out that get in his way or that 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 have some concerns he even controls the the narrative of the pr at one point uh someone says uh you know well immigrants that come to this country contribute 68 billion dollars to the economy so there's kind of a net exactly. positive there. Exactly. And, and Miller's like, bury that. Like everything bury is it. about the demonization. And it, it really becomes a sickness to a point that, um, what was it that someone wrote? The, 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 
the point is the the evilness or the meanness, the cruelty. The cruelty, the that's cruelty it. is the point. Yeah, yeah. It it really is. You know, the performance of cruelty from. You know, all of my interviews with White House officials, it is clear that Stephen Miller, in many cases, was motivated by trying to perform cruelty in order to deter people from coming. He thought that, you know, if you have the systematic separation of children from their parents, that this would traumatize enough people that, you know, the word would get back to Central America. Don't go to the U.S. They're going to, you know, traumatize your family permanently. And and you know it in a sense in a sense it worked i mean they permanently traumatized these families uh children who you know to this day have have nightmares and, and attachment issues uh, you know fearing that their parents are going to be disappeared and in many cases parent hundreds of parents were deported without their children you know total chaos and part of this is because stephen miller you know, was ramming these policies through without consulting with the national security experts, without consulting with the normal bureaucratic or policymaking process. And so, you know, agencies were not communicating with one another. People weren't keeping track of people. And, and it just created a real disaster. And, and, and so, you know, sometimes people say, well, I mean, look at all the times that the court has stopped Stephen Miller's actions. Doesn't this mean he's been largely ineffective in the White House? And while that's true that the courts have stopped many of the things he tried to do, like, you know, the systematic separation of, of families, it, it's still it just the mere fact that it happened, you know, had had some kind of effect that was thrilling to Stephen Miller. And and when it stopped, it gives Trump and Stephen Miller a further opportunity for demonization because now they can demonize the you know what liber- what Stephen Miller calls the liberal activist judges the judi- the entire judiciary is now the enemy and so it just it continues to provide them with further demonization abilities and then you know it, for them it's about getting reelected and staying in power and Trump believes that if he continues to demonize and hurt communities of color the way that Stephen Miller has has helped him do from the very beginning that he is going to get reelected. He thinks that he got re- he got elected in the first place because of Stephen Miller, and he thinks that he needs Stephen Miller's extremism in order to get reelected again in November. That was the thing I was going to ask you: Would we have Donald Trump as president if it hadn't been for him meeting Stephen Miller? I, you know, I really don't think that we would because when Trump first, you know, announced his candidacy, his his only real solution for stopping immigration was the border wall. And in the eyes of really anti-immigration restrictionists and hardliners who've been following the immigration issue for a while, they they kind of rolled their eyes at that. You know, they th- they thought of it as kind of a joke because you know we have hundreds of miles of border fencing already, and all it has done is you know result in in tunnel uh, clandestine tunnels being built as far deep as ninety feet underground, and you know re- uh, flows of of people getting moved into other places. You know, the desert, the ocean, uh, underground, and. So it wasn't until Stephen Miller came onto the campaign and started pulling policies directly from these think tanks that want population control for non-white people that Trump's, you know, appeal grew beyond, you know, it, it, it massively grew to encompass, you know, many anti-immigration restrictionists and, and people, you know, who, who harbor racist beliefs and they were able to really stoke white fear and white hatred in order to get Donald Trump into the White House in a way that 
I feel like Trump would have, you know, tried to do, but been kind of at a loss for how to strategically do without Stephen Miller. Well, you said something that really stuck out at me, where you, where you said, you know, Stephen Miller is well, Stephen Miller is well read. You know, he educates himself. We know that Donald Trump. You know, I don't, I don't know that he's ever read a book, and like, I mean, maybe if his name was on the cover or something. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, this seems to be the real arc behind him. In fact, the wall was a mnemonic device that 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 uh, I think was designed by two of his two yeah, of the people. Sam um, yeah, yeah, just to just to you know keep them on message. Just keep them on message, exactly. <laughs> the wall was an easy thing to remember the immigration issue yeah. with. The thing you detail in your book uh, at the end part is is how the the horrors of what they do to these kids, uh, these families, and the, the cruelty. Um, that I, have they even gotten all the kids back together with their parents? I don't think they have ability to, because no one kept track of it. Well, so the thing is, uh, you know, when the federal judge in San Diego ordered them to stop separating families, there was, you know, a commander, Commander Jonathan White at the Health and Human Services Agency that, you know, oversees the Office of Refugee Resettlement that's in charge of the kids, who really did a fantastic job of, you know, reuniting these children and and, and tracking down these families. It was a really hard thing to do, you know, going into Central America and finding these parents who in many cases don't even have a cell phone and and somehow, you know, piecing these families together or or getting consent to keep them separated. Um, The problem is that family separations continue to happen through today, even though the federal judge said that they can no longer happen. You know, the zero tolerance policy was revoked. But, from you know, there's these executive orders that Stephen Miller worked on in January of 2017 that can remain in place that expand Border Patrol and ICE's ability to keep people detained. And if you are going to keep people detained, the only way to skirt legal limits, legal limits on how long you can detain children is to separate them. And so you see these separations continuing you, mm-hmm. and you, and you, you know, it's impossible to quantify because it's just, it's continuing to happen. And, and they're being so the, 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 these agencies lack transparency and, and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster that continues through, through today. And I think he just laughs the whole time. Like even when the Supreme court shuts him down or, or you know another avenue. He's 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 always at work to to do something else, and and I think he just laughs. Like I really would like. It's it's too bad we can't find out if there was like a lot of Mexican girls who rejected him in high school, and this is like what the core of his thing is. Um, the uh, you know you start the book out and you end it on a on a on a on a interesting note. Uh, there's a anonymous letter that comes into or that goes out through I think uh, a school e- mail system. Yeah. And it's highly racial, and um, and the implication is that it might have been him that wrote it. Well, so actually, I mean, I don't believe that Stephen Miller wrote it because oh, okay. he was he was around five years old when it went out. But oh. I think it's I I found it so important to highlight this this hate crime because the the letter you know everything in the letter you mm. then saw Stephen Miller regurgitating at Santa Monica High School. Okay. Um, and the letter was still circulating at Santa Monica High School when Stephen Miller was a student mm. there. So for me, the implication is he was he was still he was he was exposed to it in some way. And and I I felt it was important because you know as 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 influential as Stephen Miller is in the White House, 
Um, I feel like he sometimes get the, gets the Karl Rove treatment where people paint him as the, as the brains behind Bush, uh, behind Trump in the way that Karl Rove was the brains behind Bush. And, and I, th- I think it's, it's important to distinguish between that and what is happening with Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller is not inventing this stuff. He didn't come up with this stuff. He, you know, his skill is, is the work ethic and the discipline, but also just how good he is at regurgitating other people's talking points and other people's points of view. And, and that's why I see him as a case study in radicalization, you know, an extremist who was indoctrinated and is now in the White House because, you know, he didn't invent this stuff. And from the time he was a little boy, there's this letter that, you know, goes out to hundreds of families with Hispanic surnames from this very school that Stephen Miller would later attend, you know, saying that Mexicans are brown animals and that, you know, white people are going to gas them like Hitler gassed the Jews. And, and, you know, just really horrific hate language. This crime was never solved. And this letter was continuing to circulate because there was a lot of racism among, you know, the white community in, in Santa Monica at the time. And so it's not surprising that you then see Stephen Miller echoing, you know, the letter attacks multiculturalism, the letter attacks gays and lesbians, the letter attacks this man named Oscar de la Torre, who was a school counselor at the school, who Stephen Miller fixated on. The school, the letter attacks, you know, alleged alleged double standards for Hispanic students and says that Hispanic students are the real racists. And all of this language is, is language that you see Miller regurgitating down to the attacks on the gay and lesbian club. Like it, it was it's a true study in radicalization and what happens when people are exposed to these demonizing uh, and false, you know, narratives at, at, during a time when they want someone to blame because they have personal problems. Do you think that uh, in, there's a reconciliation where he, he or maybe Trump too gets held for crimes against humanity? I mean, it's a U.S. based thing. I, I don't think it end up in Geneva or, well, or the Hague, but. Yeah, I, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, Stephen Miller's own family members have, have said, yeah. have told me, as I quote in the book, that they believe he should be tried for crimes against humanity. Wow. Jeez, um, wow. That makes yeah. for interesting family get-together. <laughs> yeah. there's, hey, there's the guy. Uh, um, I would like to see – my first vote right here, Chris Voss. Um, I would like to see him tried for crimes against humanity and uh, – and uh, Donald Trump, I, what, what they have done is so horrendous. And the, the heartbreak, the, the, the people in the book, uh, there's a few things we, uh, we, uh, that, that he was indoctrinated to, the, uh, John ba- or, uh, Bannon with the Camp of the Saints, mm-hmm. uh, this genetic mm-hmm. superior of whites, which when you look at Steve Bannon, if he's the genetic superior of whites, <laughs> uh, I don't want to be part of the, the white race. Uh, yeah, I remember his spray on hair. Uh, and then one of the things you talk about in the book, you know, early on, he tries to kind of be the face of of maybe the Trump administration and come out. And he does those extraordinary, just like off the wall, like the president has the ultimate power and he shall not be questioned. You're just yeah. like, what the hell is yeah. going on? And then he he just dips back under the radar. And, and it's amazing, too, because he's been one of the he's been one of the only surviving cabinet members other than Ivanka and whatchamacallit, just about yeah. than, than anyone. And, He's the longest lasting advisor yeah. outside outside of the president's family. And it's because he gets Donald Trump. He gets him yeah. emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, in part because of his childhood, which I delve into in the book. Um, but but also they just they have this shared instinct for 
violence, you know, this is a shared fascination with it. You, you see it in the language that they use from a very young age. You know, Trump talks about how he wants to be seen as a killer and, you know, how important it is to be a killer. And, and Stephen Miller shares those instincts for violence and has his hands on the pulse of Trump's most violent voting base because of the fact that he's been reading white supremacist literature for so long. And and so this is how you see, and also the fact that Stephen Miller skirts a bureaucracy in the same way that, that Trump does, you know, just having no regard whatsoever for the, for the officials who have worked there for decades and have expertise to bring to the table. So, you know, it is, it's, it's really remarkable how these two men work together. It really is. And the detail you put in the book uh, with uh, Trump, you know, he was the same sort of uh, just toxic child so much so that his family sent him to the military school. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, man, to come back when you're 18. Um, so you detail in this in the book. It's it's a it's an incredible book. As I was going through it, like, number one, one of the things I kept thinking is like this feels like it spent years. I mean, it's just wonderful investigative journalism and so detailed. And uh, I was just blown away. And I, and I really want people to read it because they need to understand the, the, um, the undercurrents, the, the powers that are going on behind the thing. And um, the other thing I, I saw in reading, it, especially the second half of the book, when you get into his time in the government, is how much money we are spending, how much time we are spending in the persecution of these people, uh, these immigrants, these human beings, um, and, and how much money, like, that he right. came into power under this guise that, well, these people steal your jobs and, and uh, they take all the money out of this uh, economy and blah, blah, blah. And you look at the amount of money that we spend to persecute these human beings. Uh, That's a really great point, you know, especially, I mean, because it is like this is an issue that affects everyone, regardless of whether you care about immigration or not, because of the money that is being spent on this persecution, as you so articulately point out right now. And, and also just because, you know, the focus is no longer on actual serious threats to America, such as the pandemic or such as, you know, domestic terrorism. The threat is now, the, the focus is is on families and trying to keep families out of this country because there's some fear about, you know, them reproducing too much in this country. And so it really impacts everybody, this, yeah. you know, Stephen Miller's extremism. And we probably could have all, all those voters in the steel towns that died and they don't have any industries. And I feel for them. I'm empathetic for them. Uh, but they voted for Trump because he promised jobs. We could have built them mansions. Yeah. <laughs> if, somebody, if somebody calculates the money and stuff. Um, and, and Gene, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Anything more we need to know about the book as we close out? You know, it's just the fact is that tr Donald Trump is going to be leaning more and more on Stephen Miller leading up to the election because of this era of crisis and his need to distract from his disastrous response to to the pandemic. And so if you want to understand, you know, the disaster that we're living 2020, it's, you know, it's very important to understand the story of, of Stephen Miller and, and how he came to power and the influence that he's had over Donald Trump. And also that if he gets reelected... We got more of this stuff coming down the pike, and we do. Um, I just, I just, uh, I'm just trying to get to the election and keep my sanity together. But there you go. Uh, <laughs> so grab the book, Hate Monger, uh, by Gene Guerrero, uh, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. Uh, I, I talked to a lot of people that 
that you know they just they're just normal everyday folks and like steve miller steve miller who and i'm like start explaining it to them and they go what is going on in our government and i'm like yeah you need to read this book so you understand what what's going on because you know you and i have been studying this from the beginning because like right away i was like i gotta find out what the hell just happened because uh this is really this is really freaking out there and right. your background um uh, from uh, reporting from that area uh, does a lot of that. Uh, give us your plugs, uh, Gene, so people can look you up on the interwebs. Oh yeah. People can find me at you know my website, jeanguerrero.com, or you can follow me on Twitter, which is Gene, J-E-A-N-G-U-E-R-R-E. That's my Twitter handle as well as my Instagram handle. Awesome sauce. Go out and get the books, guys. Share it with your friends. Share it with people that need to vote. Share it with people that don't understand the white nationalist agenda. We literally have a KKK racist. And, you know, I, I, I might be embellishing a little bit, but I honestly think if Donald Trump wins four more years, we're all, they're all going to be walking around in hoods. I'll be, uh, I don't know, moving to Canada or Mexico, actually, um, <laughs> trying to hitchhike my way out. Uh, but yeah, I can't get out now. So, wow. Uh, There you go. I'm stuck. Um, So anyway, uh, check out our book, guys. Go to Amazon.com. It's a it's an incredible detailed journalistic read. Uh, This is like a this is like a Bob Woodward sort of read in just the details on what goes on and mapping it out. And you get to see the monstrosity that this has created and the cruelty and hopefully it will cause um i I think historians will be talking about in the future so you've written a great uh magnum opus here Uh, thank you so much chris thank you gene thanks to my audience for tuning in be sure to go to the ecvpn.com and uh take and uh refer the show to your friends neighbors relatives make sure you subscribe go to youtube.com for slash chris voss and uh chris voss podcast network.com thanks to my audience for tuning in and we'll see you next time